Let me tell you a story, podcast number 61. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Call me Ishmael. It was the age of wisdom. Some years ago, never mind it is a how truth long You don't know about me without you. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story with your hosts, Steve and Becky Lyles. Settle back into your seat, step onto your favorite fitness machine or lace up your walking shoes, and enjoy stories from a variety of genres and authors. Hi, this is Steve. Hi, this is Becky. We're back to reading from our series books today, Treasure Island and Winds of Wyoming. Just so you know, we're almost halfway through both books. Not sure how that happened, but that's our current progress. I'll begin with Winds of Wyoming, Chapter 15. A blur of lights tangled with screams in Kate's memory. Hers. She covered her face. Mike grabbed her arms. Kate, what's the matter? I... She pressed her forehead with her fingers. I fell off a balcony a long time ago and landed on a car. Funny, it all came back to me just now. He sat back. Were you hurt? I mean, are you okay now? She opened her eyes. He looked flustered. If you don't want to do this, he said, we don't have to. She took a long breath. Her boyfriend, who turned paranoid every time he got high, had accused her of stealing his drugs and knocked her over the balcony of their third-floor apartment. She spent weeks in the county hospital recovering from the fall. But with nowhere else to go when she was released, she'd gone back to him and stayed with him until he kicked her out to make room for his pregnant mistress. She swallowed. I'd like to try. We'll take it slow and easy. He led her to a slab of flat rock and sat down. We'll go in all fours from here. He laid his hat to the side. Kate placed one knee on the warm rock and then her hands in the other knee. Help me, Jesus. I can't do this without you. Tramp yelped but kept his distance. You going to be all right? Mike asked. She felt his hand on her shoulder and sat up, palms on her thighs. A counselor once told me I have trust issues. He didn't need to know the counselor was a prison therapist. Part of me says I have every reason to believe you're the most reliable person in the world. But part of me says no one. Not even God could keep me from falling off the edge. Mike sat back when he raised. You're a braver person than I am. You never act scared of anything. He was so quiet, and his face had turned so serious or sad. Kate couldn't tell which. She feared she defended him. Tramp scooted forward to rest his chin on the toe of Mike's boot. He struck the bridge. He stroked the bridge of his dog's nose. I suppose you could say I'm afraid I'll mess things up for other people. I don't trust me. Kate frowned. She had reason not to trust herself, but why did he feel that way? He offered a wry smile. I know, sounds crazy, but it'll make sense when I tell you why. That is, if you want to hear, it's not a pretty story. Seated on the ground, his back against a tree, Jerry Ramsey smoked a cigarette and swung his pistol between his knees. After waiting more than an hour, he still saw no sign of life in Nielsen's cabin, which was locked tight, the door and the windows. 
Where could she have gone for so long without her car? He exhaled a stream of smoke. Probably took off with a jerk who chased him out of the cabin. He pursed his lips around the cigarette, laid the gun down, and cracked his knuckles. Nielsen belonged to him, but she kept whoring around. That would stop once he had her back in Pennsylvania where she belonged, where they both belonged. He checked his watch. Although he could easily break into the cabin away for Nielsen, the redhead wanted him to meet her at the Wild Bunch. He grabbed his weapon and stood, cursing under his breath, sick to death of her and her so-called perfect plan that was long on promises and short on details. But he needed a drink, so he'd play the game. This time. The redhead had assured him Nielsen would soon be his once she took care of a few minor details, none of which she could share with him, of course. But he was running out of time. He had to get himself and Nielsen out of the state before his court date. Though all he'd done was have a few too many, he didn't want a chance what some stupid judge might do to him if he hung around for the hearing. Ramsey chewed a fingernail, then squinted at his finger. He always felt better when it bled. He nibbled some more. Maybe the redhead could help him. Maybe she couldn't. But he'd had enough stalling. He was anxious to pair up with Nielsen again. Things had been so good between him and her when they first met. They were a good match. That is, until she got pickled in religion. He'd pound that out of her, and he'd make her pay for aborting their baby. He spat at a tree. He'd been abandoned twice when he was four. But at least his mother let him live. She'd had that much decency. The first time she gave him away, she woke him in the middle of the night to hand him to a man and woman whose breath sickened him, the way hers did when she came home after dark. The only thing he remembered about the couple's house was the growling dog with the long, dripping fangs. He shivered. They said he'd cried too much, but he couldn't help it. He was terrified of the dog, and he wanted to go home. They took him back the next day, but his mother didn't care that he'd missed her, that he loved her, that the dog bit him. Instead, she slapped his face and said she'd teach him a lesson he'd never forget. Then she opened his little suitcase and turned it upside down, dumping the contents on the floor. She grabbed his favorite crayon, the brown one, from the pile and scribbled something on the top of the cardboard box and threw the crayon on the floor. When it broke in half, he couldn't keep from crying out. It was his best color. She grabbed his shirt front and jerked him close. Her breath made him gag. Today, you get a new name, Chester. That's when she'd squinted at him like she did when she was really mad. What do you think of that? He didn't answer because he didn't know what to say, and he knew she'd hit him if he said the wrong thing. You are no longer Chester. You are Gerald Ramsey. She gripped his shoulders, her fingers drilling his bones. Do you understand? He didn't understand, but dared not admit it. Repeat after me. My name is Gerald Ramsey. Confused, he gawked at her. She shook him hard and slapped him again. Say it. My name is Gerald Ramsey. He repeated, My name is Gerald Ramsey. Over and over, she demanded, Tell me your name. Time after time after time. Finally satisfied with his responses, she tossed two pairs of pants and three shirts into the box, leaving his coloring book, his crayons, and his stuffed rabbit on the floor. When he reached for the rabbit, she knocked it from his hand and yelled at him through clenched teeth, That's for crybaby Chester. You are big boy Gerald Ramsey. Get in the car. He remembered her neck muscles looking like stiff, 
bulging ropes. Grinding the cigarette into the dirt with the heel of his boot, he relived the silent drive to the back entrance of a towering, faded brick building. He saw his mother reach across him to open the passenger door and heard her tell him to get out. When he hesitated, she pushed him out of the car and shoved the box with the scribbles across the seat. It fell onto the ground beside him. Time to grow up, Gerald Ramsey. Shut the door. He got up and closed it like she said, and she immediately drove away without a wave or a backward glance. But before she exited the parking lot, she stopped the car, backed it to where he was standing, and rolled down the window. He was reaching for the door handle to get inside when she yelled, Be sure to tell them your name is Gerald Ramsey. When she left that time, she didn't return. He never saw his mother again, and he never cried again. He hadn't cried when the older orphans at St. Agatha's home for children pinched him until his arms turned black and blue. He didn't cry when they stole his food. He didn't cry when they threw gravel at him on the slide and smashed him face first in the snow. He closed his eyes, breathing faster and faster. He hadn't cried when Nielsen killed his baby and got him fired from Patterson. He'd see to that she paid for all the grief she'd cost him, and he'd make sure she had another baby, and another, and another. Ramsey leaned against the tree on the brink of passing out. He bit his tongue to slow his breathing. He didn't know why it was so important to have kid after kid. He couldn't stand the brats. Maybe he just wanted to be able to say he had a family. He had the power to fill the world with Ramsey's, and that's what he'd do. After he had his way with Kara, or whatever her name was, like he'd done with the girls at St. Agatha's and the women at Patterson. Swatting at the pests that buzzed his ear, he took one last look at the empty cabin. He'd return later. Just like the stupid mosquito, he'd be back. Kate stretched her legs in front of her on the rock and waited for Mike to tell his story. But when she saw the muscles in his jaw spasm as he apparently searched for words, she touched his hand. Hey, you don't have to tell me. He rubbed his jaw. Like you, I need to face my fears and my past. Her heart stopped. Did he know more about her history than she thought he knew? Or was he talking about what she just told him? The day Matt, my older brother, turned 15, Mike said, he got his motorcycle license and bought a brand new Yamaha with money he'd saved for years. Mike tilted his head. You know I have a brother, right? I've seen the pictures on your mom's desk, but I just assumed the other boy was a cousin or a close friend. Guess I didn't think much about it. Matt was born three years before me, my only sibling. Anyway, after he rode the bike around the ranch for three or four days, Dad said I could ride with him. His gaze was distant. Kate had a feeling his memories of riding the prairies with his big brother were still vivid. We had a lot of fun charging up and down hills and bumping across pastures. We were supposed to use ranch roads and stay off the highway. But it didn't take us long to decide we needed to feel the speed and power we could only achieve on a paved road. He looked down, scratching at the rock with his fingernail. I don't know why I'm telling you all this. Sounds like you were typical boys. Yeah, but... He shrugged and resumed his story. We had a great time on the highway. The road in front of us and the big engine beneath us. The trees just flew by. Eventually, we realized we were a long way from home. Matt pulled onto a wide spot in the road to turn around. 
He was about to take off when I asked if we could switch places. He said, no way, but I begged and begged and promised to be careful. Although I was 12 at the time, he'd already let me ride the motorcycle by myself. When he finally gave in, he told me not to go too fast, that Dad would ground us both for the rest of our lives if I got a ticket. Then, Mike grimaced. I'm not sure what happened next. I can't tell you if I was driving on the highway or had driven up the roadways, but I, I lost control. He stared across the canyon. I don't remember the accident. All I know is, for a moment he didn't say anything. Finally, he blurted it out. Matt was killed, and I ended up in the hospital for several weeks. Kate groaned. I'm so sorry, Mike. That must have been an awful time in your life. He absently patted the dog's head. I was probably being a show-off. I remember wanting to prove to Matt I could handle the machine as good as he did. Instead, I killed him and destroyed his motorcycle. Isn't that a little harsh, especially when you don't remember the specifics of the accident? Dad told me it wasn't my fault, but the fact is I broke the law and killed my brother. If we hadn't been on the highway and I hadn't been on the one steering the bike, it would never have happened. You could have had the same fatal accident under legal conditions. His shrug was dismissive. Yeah, well... Anyway, I blew it big time. Took a lot out of my parents. We never talked about the accident. But they were different afterward. And you too, Kate said. Yeah. He sighed. Sorry, Kate. I meant for this to be fun for you. And here I am, telling you my deep, dark, depressing secrets. Everyone has regrets. I have my share. Should she tell him about her own past? She mentally shook her head. No, this conversation was about him, not her. But just this morning, I read in the Psalms that God has removed our sins as far as the East is from the West. God forgives us. However, as a friend once told me, we have to accept His forgiveness before we can forgive ourselves. He tapped the rock with his fingertips. I'll never forgive myself for killing my brother. She understood how he felt. Sometimes when feelings of guilt overwhelmed her, she wondered if she'd truly accepted God's forgiveness for all the evil she'd done. You might learn more about what happened by searching newspaper archives. Or you could ask your mom what she remembers of the accident. She's already sad enough about losing Dad. But Matt died at least ten years ago. Sixteen. I'm twenty-eight. So it's been... Sixteen years, and you don't believe your mom can talk about your brother's death? From what I've seen, she's a strong woman. He massaged his jaw. You're probably right. I'll think about talking to her. But enough about me. He put his hands behind him on the rock and stretched his back. You ready to take a peek at the canyon? The twinkle had returned to his eyes. She gave him a playful nudge. You said all that to throw me off guard. He repositioned to his hands and knees. Nah. I tell all the girls I'm a murderer. Don't say that. You're not a murderer. And she wasn't a thief or a prostitute or a junkie or... He smiled. Ready to go for it? She dropped onto her hands and knees beside a solid frame. Inch by inch they crept toward the edge. She felt no fear. Just surprised that she was no longer trembling. That she wasn't flustered by Mike's nearness. Tramp whined. 
They ignored the dog and continued to crawl until their fingers reached the rim. Kate liked seeing their hands side by side on the rock. Mike flicked a pine cone over the edge. She didn't hear it land. This is it, he winked at her. Work your knees backward until you're flat on your belly. Kate's stomach flip-flopped and she could barely recall his simple instructions. A close-up wink from Mike was enough to send her over the edge. She swallowed. Not literally, I hope. Together they flattened their bodies across the slab. Now, he said, pull forward. One slide from the edge, he turned to her. You ready, Kate? His blue eyes were warm and inviting, his lips just inches away. Tempted to touch his face and feel his skin, she instead looked across the empty expanse before her, acutely aware of his aftershave and the fact she'd never been so intimate with boulders, which had a surprising metallic scent. As ready as I'll ever be. Focusing on the far side of the canyon, she wriggled forward until she felt an updraft of air on her cheeks and dropped her gaze. Oh! Mike elbowed her. She gasped. Sorry, he said. I just wanted to ask what you think of the view. It's a long, long way down. Trees covered the slope on the far side of the canyon, but on the wall below them, granite, gray granite columns of rock stood nearly perpendicular with the river interrupted only by an occasional stunted bush or cluster of yellow wildflowers. A pair of hawks drifted in circles halfway down the chasm. Something dark emerged from the trees on the opposite bank of the river. What's that? A moose. Do you think it's Mangy's son or daughter? He chuckled. I don't know if it's Mangy's progeny, but it's some moose's son. Those antlers are the clue. And look, there's a couple kayakers coming up the river. It didn't take long for Kate to relax and enjoy the scene with Mike. He pointed out his favorite canyon details, and she asked questions until Tramp whined again. Mike turned. It's okay, boy. Kate folded her arms under her chin. This is fantastic. You can stay here while I get the fire started, he said. No way. If you leave this rock, I leave this rock. After a buffalo steak dinner with fried potatoes and coleslaw, they lingered beside the campfire, drinking hot chocolate and watching the sunset paint the sky above the canyon. A fat, round creature the size of a large cat waddled into sight, its silhouetted shape shuffling across a reddened rim. Tramp barked at the animal, which vanished in the rocks. Kate looked at Mike. What was that? A yellow-bellied marmot. Mike pointed at Tramp, who growled and sniffed the air, but avoided the edge of the cliff. He's the real yellow belly. Kate called Tramp to her side. After the collie lay down next to her, she turned to Mike. I'm still waiting to hear what happened to your truck. He laughed. You're determined to dig all the skeletons out of my closet today. But he told her the story of Old Blue and the bison cow. Stroking Tramp's head, Kate smiled and giggled as Mike recounted his okay corral tale. Though she didn't want the magical evening to end, the graying sky made her wonder how difficult it would be to find their way home in the dark. Here's Treasure Island, Part 4, The Stockade. Chapter 16. Narrative continued by the doctor. How the ship was abandoned. It was about half past one, three bells in the sea phrase, that the two boats went ashore from the Hispaniola. 
The captain, the squire, and I were talking matters over in the cabin. Had there been a breath of wind, we should have fallen on the six mutineers who were left aboard with us, slipped our cable, and away to sea. But the wind was wanting, and, to complete our helplessness, down came Hunter with the news that Jim Hawkins had slipped into a boat and was gone ashore with the rest. It never occurred to us to doubt Jim Hawkins, but we were alarmed for his safety. With the men and the temper they were in, it seemed an even chance if we should see the lad again. We ran on deck. The pitch was bubbling in the seams. The nasty stench of the place turned me sick. If ever a man smelt fever and dysentery, it was in that abominable anchorage. The six scoundrels were sitting grumbling under a sail in the forecastle. Ashore we could see the gigs made fast, and a man sitting in each, hard by where the river runs in. One of them was whistling Lily Bolero. Waiting was a strain, and it was decided that Hunter and I should go ashore with the jolly boat in quest of information. The gigs had leaned to their right, but Hunter and I pulled straight in, in the direction of the stockade upon the chart. The two who were left guarding their boats seemed in a bustle at our appearance. Lily Bolero stopped off, and I could see the pair discussing what they ought to do. Had they gone and told Silver, all might have turned out differently. But they had their orders, I suppose, and decided to sit quietly where they were, and hark back again to Lily Bolero. There was a slight bend in the coast, and I steered so as to put it between us. Even before we landed, we had thus lost sight of the gigs. I jumped out and came as near running as I durst, with a big silk handkerchief under my hat for coolness' sake, and a brace of pistols ready primed for safety. I had not gone a hundred yards when I reached the stockade. This was how it was. A spring of clear water rose almost at the top of a knoll. Well, on the knoll, and enclosing the spring... They had clapped a stout log house, fit to hold two score of people on a pinch, and loopholed for musketry on every side. All round this they had cleared a wide space, and then the thing was completed by a paling six feet high, without door or opening, too strong to pull down without time and labor, and too open to shelter the besiegers. The people in the log house had them in every way. They stood quiet in the shelter and shot the others like partridges. All they wanted was a good watch and food, for, short of a complete surprise, they might have held the place against a regiment. What particularly took my fancy was the spring, for though we had a good enough place of it in the cabin of the Hispaniola, with plenty of arms and ammunition, and things to eat and excellent wines, there had been one thing overlooked. We had no water. I was thinking this over when there came ringing over the island the cry of a man at the point of death. I was not new to violent death. I have served His Royal Highness the Duke of Cumberland and got a wound myself at Fontenoy, but I know my pulse went dot and carry one. Jim Hawkins is gone, was my first thought. It is something to have been an old soldier, but more still to have been a doctor. There was no time to dilly-dally in our work, and so now I made up my mind instantly, and with no time lost, returned to the shore and jumped on board the jolly boat. By good fortune, Hunter pulled a good oar, 
We made the water fly, and the boat was soon alongside, and I aboard the schooner. I found them all shaken. All was natural. The squire was sitting down as white as a sheet, thinking of the harm he had led us to, the good soul, and one of the six forecastle hands was little better. There's a man, says Captain Smollett, nodding towards him, new to this work. He came nigh-hand fainting, doctor, when he heard the cry. Another touch of the rudder, and that man would join us. I told my plan to the captain, and between us, we settled on the details of his accomplishment. We put old Redruth in the gallery between the cabin and the forecastle, with three or four loaded muskets and a mattress for protection. Hunter brought the boat round under the stern port, and Joyce and I set to work loading her with powder tins, muskets, bags of biscuits, kegs of pork, a cask of cognac, and my invaluable medicine chest. In the meantime, the squire and the captain stayed on deck, and the latter hailed the coxswain, who was the principal man aboard. Mr. Hands, he said, here are two of us with a brace of pistols each, if any one of you six makes a signal of any description, that man's dead. They were a good deal taken aback, and after a little consultation, one and all tumbled down the fore companion, thinking, no doubt, to take us on the rear. But when they saw Redruth waiting for them in the sparred gallery, they went about ship at once, and a head popped out again on deck. Down, dog, cries the captain. And the head popped back again and we heard no more for the time of these six very faint-hearted seamen. By this time, tumbling things in as they came, we had the jolly boat loaded as much as we dared. Joyce and I got out through the stern port, and we made for shore again as fast as oars could take us. The second trip fairly aroused the watchers along the shore. Lily Bolero was dropped again, and just before we lost sight of them behind the little point, one of them whipped ashore and disappeared. I had half a mind to change my plan and destroy their boats, but I feared that Silver and the others might be close at hand, and all might very well be lost by trying for too much. We had soon touched land in the same place as before, and said to provision the blockhouse. All three made the first journey, heavily laden, and tossed our stores over the palisade. Then leaving Joyce to guard them, one man, to be sure, but with half a dozen muskets, Hunter and I returned to the jolly boat and loaded ourselves once more. So we proceeded without pausing to take breath till the whole cargo was bestowed, when the two servants took up their position in the blockhouse and I, with all my power, sculled back to the Hispaniola. That we should have risked a second boatload seems more daring than it really was. They had the advantage of numbers, of course, but we had the advantage of arms. Not one of the men ashore had a musket, and before they could get within range for pistol shooting, we flattered ourselves we should be able to give a good account of a half dozen at least. The squire was waiting for me at the stern window. All his faintness gone from him. He caught the painter and made it fast, and we fell to loading the boat for our very lives. Pork, powder, and biscuit was the cargo, with only a musket and a cutlass apiece for the squire and me and Redruth and the captain. The rest of the arms and powder we dropped overboard in two fathoms and a half of water, 
so that we could see the bright steel shining far below us in the sun on the clean, sandy bottom. By this time, the tide was beginning to ebb, and the ship was swinging round to her anchor. Voices were heard faintly helloing in the direction of the two gigs, and though this reassured us for Joyce and Hunter, who were well to the eastward, it warned our party to be off. Redruth retreated from his place in the gallery and dropped into the boat, which we then brought round to the ship's counter to be handier for Captain Smollett. Now, men, said he, do you hear me? There was no answer from the forecastle. It's to you, Abraham Gray, it's to you I am speaking. Still no reply. Gray, resumed Mr. Smollett, a little louder, I am leaving this ship, and I order you to follow your captain. I know you are a good man at bottom, and I dare say not one of the lot of you is as bad as he makes out. I have my watch here in my hand. I give you thirty seconds to join me in. There was a pause. Come, my fine fellow, continued the captain. Don't hang so long in stays. I'm risking my life and the lives of these good gentlemen every second. There was a sudden scuffle, a sound of blows, and out burst Abraham Gray with a knife cut on the side of his cheek and came running to the captain like a dog to the whistle. I'm with you, sir, said he, and the next moment he and the captain had dropped aboard of us and we had shoved off and given way. We were clear out of the ship, but not yet ashore in our stockade. Our friend Lori Bauer has written about her grandfather in a piece called Grandpa. Grandpa died last month, and we're having a sale. His warm, familiar old chair models its powder-blue nubby upholstery, sun-faded and threadbare, to discerning patrons. Its vulgar orange price tag protrudes into the cold driveway. In the chair's middle, a deep depression hollows out seat and back, hardly the size and shape of a full-grown man, more like that of a skinny child. In this, my grandfather's chair, he wheezed and gasped with pain, life slipping away with each labored exhalation. This old friend stuck as close as his wrinkled skin, causing friction sores as he perpetually searched for a better, less painful posture, a posture he never found. I remember how Grandpa bounced me on his knee when I was little. Never a hulk of a man, he often reached his palm with its long, lean fingers to hold me steady. Wiry, people called him. I thought they meant like a piano wire, tight, thin, able to handle pressure and tension. His life had been like that, tight, thin, and pressure-filled, as a World War I vet, Great Depression survivor, poverty-stricken handyman and coal miner, doing any honest work that put food on the table, surviving. My grandfather was poor. Most of his life he didn't know a trade. His generation believed in sole providers, so Grandma never worked. They bought hackneyed Salvation Army clothes and purchased discolored and discounted meat, while a picnic in a nearby park constituted a holiday. During the Depression, my dad's straight A's proved useless effort. A lack of money kept him from attending college or even joining the high school track team, because he'd have to buy running shoes. 
In his 20s, my dad studied for the CPA exam and passed it, first try. Later, he took care of Grandma and Grandpa financially. Grandpa received a small pension from the VA and an even smaller check from Social Security. One day, as his bank book lay open on the table, I saw a balance of $20. Grandpa taught me card tricks. As an expert illusionist, he entertained at parties and church gatherings. He designed and built many of his illusions, like the set of five individual brass rings that, when squiggled around in his palm, suddenly formed a chain. With a wave of his hand, the sparkling chain disappeared up his sleeve. For his next trick, he wrapped a lit camel cigarette in a handkerchief. The cigarette disappeared from inside the cloth without burning it. I never figured this one out, and he never told me how he did it. My grandfather had a temper, and so did my dad. They fought a lot, but as a kid I never understood why. It scared me when they yelled. I'd run for the basement of Grandpa's tiny house and huddle next to the creaking oil furnace, waiting for the angry bass voices to subside. They said such mean things to each other that if I stayed in the room I'd cry, which only made them matter. Retreat seemed the best idea. In the basement, I discovered stacked boxes of Grandpa's treasures. One box sported all, the, all sizes of rusty nails and bolts he thought he might need someday. String balls, mounds of rubber bands, 20-year-old calendars, and bits of styrofoam were all assigned boxes. While Grandpa and Daddy yelled, I explored the antique cards with dull-colored teddy bears and oodles of love from Aunt Bertha, wishing you a blessed birthday, were my favorites. My grandfather never talked about himself. In a basement box, I found his picture as a young soldier. I couldn't believe the handsome young man in the photograph was Grandpa, with his now thin, receding hairline, thick glasses, and hawkish nose. Seeing such a picture made me long to hear about his war days. In my child's mind, he was a hero, dodging enemy bullets to drag wounded comrades back into foxholes, not caring a whit about his safety. I imagine him receiving a medal for bravery that he refused, saying, it was just in the line of duty, sir. I urged him to tell me about World War I, but he said, You're not ready to hear about that yet. He died before I was ever ready. Grandpa kept Nestle's semi-sweet chocolate bars in the kitchen drawer, but I didn't dare snitch one. He counted them every day and knew exactly how many were there at any given time. I had to do something spectacular to earn one. One day, when I was twelve... I beat him at checkers, and he gave me half a dozen. Appalled, my mother said, Grandpa should pay for my next dental bill. He said, Let the youngster alone. She won't eat them all at once. She knows better. Grandpa was wrong. In ten minutes, I consumed them all and suffered a stomachache that night that made me think that Grandpa was the grandest. My grandfather was an alcoholic. He never went for the tame stuff. He wanted a real buzz, preferring Jim Beam and Seagram's, always smelling like a medicine cabinet. During the black days of the Depression, his family wouldn't have been so deprived if he hadn't drunk away all his money. Grandma took to begging at the local soup kitchen, asking for goodwill clothes from her church to cover her growing family. Eventually, my grandfather went cold turkey, as he said, with God's help, and bragged about God's generosity in providing for him and his family. Every day he read his Bible, its spine badly cracked, pages badly tattered. 
Grandpa was a craftsman. He loved carving and spending hours whittling on styrofoam to fashion a crenellated castle or a low-slung corvette. One wrong cut, however, and he started over with that particular piece, so each endeavor was a perfect creation. He designed and painted a detailed scale model of our home church, St. Paul's Lutheran, in styrofoam, displaying it during the dedication of a new wing. People were amazed at the minute details, the stained glass windows, the bell tower, the choir loft. I wonder if, under different circumstances, my grandfather could have become wealthy producing special effects models for the movies. When I grew up, I realized my dad blamed my grandfather for his meager childhood. When Daddy was young and Grandpa drank away his paychecks, they often went hungry. As a teenager, my father got his kid sister Mildred ready for grade school in the mornings, while Grandma made breakfast. In another room, my grandfather slept it off. Passed out in his chair, dried pea-green vomit on his shirt, the acrid stench of Jim Beam permeating the room. Of course, that was before I knew him. Grandpa invented a mathematical trick. I picked any number, like my age, then took that number through a series of calculations, adding, subtracting, and multiplying by different factors. When I finished, I wrote down the resulting number on a piece of paper. This he burned in an ashtray. Then he poured the ashes over his forearm and spread them around. The secret here centered on the mathematical manipulations always producing 1,082. Beforehand, Grandpa wrote this number on his arm with soap. And when he rubbed the ashes over it, they adhered to his skin, but not to the soapy writing. So it appeared he guessed your number every time. When I was six, Grandpa said, how about a new trick? He set a silver dollar on the table and challenged me to remove it without touching it. If I could, he said, I could have the dollar. I slid an envelope under the coin and lifted it. This surprised him because he had created another way to raise it, a complex, magical way using invisible fishing line, assured I wouldn't figure it out. He didn't show me his trick that day, and though dollars were scarce, he let me keep the coin. For many years, my grandfather didn't own a car, depending on urban transit and his own cable-thin legs to get him where he needed to go. After he quit drinking, he bought a 1955 Dodge. That was in the 60s. It was pale yellow with acres of shiny chrome. He waxed it every Saturday in his younger years. The upholstery smelled new with Sergeant's upholstery cleaner. A deodorizing paper pine tree hung over the rearview mirror, and the glass glistened, streak-free. I never saw so much as a Kleenex on the seat. When he purchased the Dodge, he drove Grandma to the store, telling her, Things are finally coming together for us. Grandpa collected stamps. In a box in the basement rested a large turquoise album with a flashy red binder. The International Postage Stamp Album, Junior Edition, fully illustrated, copyright 1925. Some of the album's countries have changed names. Tripolitania has become Libya, and Persia is now Iran. Some don't exist anymore. Baden was absorbed into Germany and trans. Jordania was once a protectorate of Great Britain. While stationed in Europe, Grandpa collected many stamps, and his military drinking pals sent him more from overseas after he returned to the States. When I turned 25, my father gave me my grandfather's stamps to pass down to my son. This collection, worthless when Grandpa started it, is valued at several thousand dollars. I won't sell it, though. 
It's meant to be passed along. My grandfather changed as much as the album's countries during his last years. First, he lost his sense of smell. Why? I don't know. Maybe from chain-smoking camel cigarettes or from breathing coal dust during his mining years. He bemoaned the fact that he could no longer smell Grandma's tangy sourdough fried chicken, although he could still taste it. We mourned the fact that he couldn't smell when he needed a bath or a toothbrush. Invisible prison bars tightened around his body in the faded blue chair, and he only got up to eat and go to the bathroom. Later, when he got dizzy standing up, he begged Grandma to bring him his chicken dinner, complete with buttery-colored mashed potatoes, velvety brown gravy, sour-tinted corn, and fresh honey biscuits on a TV tray. After dinner, he needed my arm to get him up and lead him to the bathroom on his fragile chicken legs. His magical forearm rested feather light in my hand. He popped lots of snowy aspirin past crooked yellow teeth and moaned whenever he moved. I tried to talk to him, but the pain was too great, and he snapped at me to leave him alone. My grandfather didn't believe in doctors. When they diagnosed him with chronic rheumatoid arthritis and terminal emphysema, he quit them. What good can they do me? I could have told them what I have. I'm going to die anyway, and all they want is all my money, and then some before I go. As he approached death, I, heard his, I could hear his breathing from the basement, like the gasping of a huge steam-driven engine trying to climb a mountain. His eyes, those beautiful gray spots of light, bulged from his face, and his skin hung in folds on his arms and neck. Under his translucent skin, sea-green veins popped out and pulsed on his neck and arms. I tried to hug him once, but he screamed in pain. Even if I squeezed his gnarled, once-conjuring hand, he winced. Finally, he couldn't finish his chicken dinners. Grandma and I talked and laughed as he sat gasping, rigored with pain, in the blue chair in his musty corner of the living room. My grandfather died in his sleep. My grandfather died in his sleep. My grandmother woke that morning to a new sound, one of silence, and touched him on the shoulder. He slept in his underwear, boxer shorts, and a tank-style undershirt, and his shoulder was ice cold. He was smiling. I put a silver dollar in his casket before they closed the lid. The other day, I tried to recreate the robber card trick Grandpa taught me. I couldn't. I still love Nestle's semi-sweet chocolate bars, but can never stop with one. A young couple stands looking at Grandpa's chair in the driveway. The husband rubs his chin. We can't get that thing in the back of the pickup. It's just a piece of junk. I bite my cheek. What will you do with it anyway, he asks her. I think it would look great in the family room, she sets her jaw. Nah, it's just an old chair. It stinks, too. Not worth the effort. Well, I want it, and I'm going to have it. It's going to be good as new when I get it restuffed and recovered. Besides, they don't make chairs like that anymore. She hands my mother $25, while the husband, grumbling, loads the bedraggled chair into their pickup. Let's close out this episode with a fun story from David Roper. He uses verses from 1 Thessalonians as his jumping-off point, entitles it, Minding My Own Business. 
Some years ago, our son Josh and I were making our way up a mountain trail when we spied a cloud of dust rising in the air ahead of us. We crept forward and discovered a grizzled old badger busy making a den in a dirt bank by the trail. He had his head and shoulders in the hole and was vigorously digging with his front paws and kicking the dirt out the hole with his hind feet. He was so involved in his work, he didn't hear us. I couldn't resist. I spied a slender lodgepole pine about 15 feet long lying on the ground nearby, picked it up and gently prodded him in the rump. True story, that badger leaped straight up in the air, twisted his body 180 degrees in midair, gnashed his teeth, and started running toward us before his feet ever hit the ground. He looked for all the world like one of those cartoon characters whose feet and legs seemed to whirl. Josh and I set new world records for the 100-meter cross-country dash. I learned something from my brashness. I need to stay out of other people's business. Why do I always want to meddle in other people's lives? I need to quiet my anxieties over their progress, or lack thereof, and stop trying to manage their affairs. Jeremy Taylor said, We should enjoy more peace if we did not busy ourselves with the words and deeds of other men, which appertain not to our charge. That's especially true in spiritual matters. We can pray for and encourage our brothers and sisters. We can seek by God's grace to exemplify the truth as we learn it. We may have opportunities to pass on something of God's word when it's appropriate to do so. And on the odd occasion, we may be called upon to offer a gentle word of correction. But the direction our brothers and sisters are going and the speed with which they are growing is solely the Lord's business. That's it for now. As always, we appreciate you listening to the stories that we read. Feel free to send us suggestions for other stories or your own work. And as Steve said, that's all for this episode. Until next time, happy reading. Thank you for listening to Let Me Tell You a Story. Please email your comments, suggestions, and submissions to story at beckyliles.com. Steve and Becky like to hear your thoughts, and they encourage authors to send stories and other short prose and poetry for them to read on the podcast. You can learn more about Becky's books by visiting beckyliles.com or by searching for her books online. Her nonfiction titles can be found under the name Becky Lyles and her fiction under Rebecca Carrie Lyles. All of her books are available in both print and ebook formats. Winds of Wyoming and Winds of Freedom are also offered in audio format online. That's all for now. Tune in next time to enjoy a fresh assortment of stories on Let Me Tell You a Story.